dinosaurs and a man. Two species separated by 65 million years of evolution. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Hello everyone, ladies, gents, and everything in between. Hope you're all keeping well. Welcome back to Fossil Fick with me, Mike. Today is an interesting one as we move into episode three. Uh, this is the first request. Uh, this is actually sent in not long after episode one came out, so I bet you appreciate my prompt timing. Um, so the request was for the Disney film The Good Dinosaur. It came out in 2015. Uh, I found when I was doing the research for this that personally I don't have a huge amount to say on that film in isolation. Now, however, Disney, fortuitously many years before, had come out with a film called Disney's Dinosaur, uh, which took a very different approach to the dinosaur fiction. Um, and I think a really fun thing to do would be look at the history of both these films, um, give a, in this case, fairly brief summary of the plots, what I thought of them both, and like how they play off each other and what I think they say about the kind of stories that these guys were trying to tell at the time using dinosaurs, extinct animal stuff like that. Dinosaur has a much longer history than you might actually expect, which is tied into both Jurassic Park and, and you may be second-guessing this one, Robocop, the original film. Um, in 1986, Phil Tippett, yes, uh, Phil, you had only one job, Tippett, was working on seminal science fiction film Robocop with Paul Verhoeven. So during production of this film, Tip had approached Verhoeven and said that they should do a dinosaur movie together. Um, Verhoeven was very positive about the idea and he thought it would be very interesting. Um, in his idea, he wanted to base it off the 1953 film Shane, where you sort of follow this main character going through a devastated landscape, going to a promised land. Um, this would have been a very dark film. Um, it was uh, originally meant to be written by Wallen Green, who came on, and the basic project that Tippett, Verhoeven, and uh, Green came up with was the story of a Styracosaurus called Woot and a Tyrannosaurus called Gron uh, Grozny, and you'll see Grozny there, uh, and a small lemur-like animal called Suri would also be featured. The idea that uh, Woot was looking for a new uh, feeding ground, and he was being stalked by this Tyrannosaurus Rex, while Suri would be playing about in the background. Uh, towards the end of the film, the two main characters would come together. Woot would defeat uh, Grozny in a fight. But even after winning, the meteorite would strike the earth. Dinosaurs would be wiped out. And because they were small enough to survive the explosion, Suri and the other primates and mammals would survive, ultimately giving rise to us. It was intended to be quite dark, quite violent, uh, more in line with something like Fip, uh, Tippett's famous uh, 
short stop motion where a I believe it's Albertosaurus fights a Styracosaurus. Um, if you've seen any kind of dinosaur documentary, it's it's very very well known. While they were making this, uh, Thomas Smith became involved and he briefly took over as director for the project. Uh, Verhoeven and Tippett had to had to leave. Uh, this was back in 1990, and uh, Smith really liked it. Liked the idea, but at the time, a new writer had come in, um, Jean Rosenberg, and she was writing a typical Disney story, talking dinosaurs, charming, fun, lovable. Smith wanted to do something very in line with Tippett and Verhoeven's original vision. He wanted to do a a violent, speechless film, um, which was more a nature documentary. Um, he wanted to, like, uh, the idea was to use stop motion for the actual film and for the lemurs to just, you know, get ring-tailed lemurs or something like that since similar animals did exist around the time of the dinosaurs, they'd be able to put it off. He actually tracked down a lemur trainer. Then Jeffrey Katzenberg, um, the highly successful but occasionally controversial uh, Disney chairman of the time, um, basically moved Smith onto another project, Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. And yeah, uh, David Allen came in and replaced Smith for the project. They got to the stage where they were auditioning lemurs, which is a sentence very few people ever said. And then Allen's, Allen's version of the film, which was still quite dark, ended up in development to hell for one reason and one reason only. Jurassic Park was a stunning success and revolutionized what you could do visually. They had been working on a stop motion film. They had been designing a stop-motion film, and then suddenly Jurassic Park comes out with graphics that still look good today. Uh, they were so advanced. And Disney said, well, we'll hold out until we can do something similar. We can have good digital media. We can produce a, a CGI film. We'll hold out. Um, late 1994 is when they really started working on the project. Uh, but they ran into a slight snafu when they tried to do CGI backgrounds. But at the time, they were terrible. Look at the kind of detail you'd have to put into a good background now and, and what you could pull off in the in the mid-90s. Uh, eventually, it was decided what they would do was something that hadn't been done to the scale before anyway, uh, was go out, do live action scenery shots. Um, all the locations would be filmed in real world and the dinosaurs would be superimposed in on top of it. Now, this is a film with no humans, no cutaways from the CGI effects. So this is a big move, a big, big budget move. Um, moving in CEO Michael Eisner uh, came in. They, he was approached and, and they basically we're not sure how much this is going to cost in the end, but we want to go ahead. Eisner thought, okay, these guys know what they're doing. And he then came in and said, eh, but I don't want this to be a silent film. I don't want this to be voiceless. The dinosaurs have to talk. Um, now, one thing about Disney's dinosaurs is they were trying to make the animals look real or as real as you could do with CGI at the time. So the talking element threw some people off uh, in the production team. Eventually, they came to a conclusion where they would make alterations to the dinosaurs based on the need to have them speak. So animals like Styracosaurus and Iguanodon, which featured prominently and had quite hard beaks in real life, um, were given lips. George Schreibner came in and teamed up with Ralph Zondag as a new director. Um, as this project was going on, Floyd Norman was made a storyboard artist, and he says that Schreibner wasn't happy with the original vision. Um, Schre- Scri- or Schreibner, rather. Um, 
he was well known for stuff like Oliver and Company. He wanted something kind of fun, wacky, playing on the idea of the size, the weirdness of these animals. His thing like, how can I make this more traditionally Disney? Like, this movie was originally envisioned as basically an updated version of the dinosaur section from Fantasia. Now it was being envisioned as something a bit more standard Disney. Um, Scribner got to work on this and then left the project again. Like someone else left the project and was replaced by Eric Layton. Uh, Layton's new script made things a little weird originally because it basically was Noah's arc with dinosaurs. Um, the main character was an iguanodon called Noah. He had a friend who was a lemur called Adam. And the enemies were a Carnotaurus and a... And the rival Guanadon, whose name was Cain. Kind of, like, the original idea, of course, was that the Promised Land. Kind of obvious they were thinking we'll tell Noah's Ark, but with dinosaurs. During production, the names changed quite a bit. Uh, eventually, our lead character was called Aladar. Uh, the lemur was named Zini. And uh, the enemy of Guanadon was called Kron. And the story eventually ended up being heavily, heavily reworked. Um, it was also, like absolutely demanding graphically like when you think before now we had the the biggest most successful cgi film of its time and a total cgi animated film was uh toy story really and yeah graphically uh dinosaur which came out four or five years later was a huge jump because it didn't have to rely on cartoony outs when you're doing a movie full of cartooning looking characters you don't have to worry about how realistic things look in this case, Disney needed these things to look realistic. This was the the entire premise of the film, really. Um, they ended up having 48 animators work in 300 computers. Um, David Krentz, a well-known paleontologist at the time, was doing the character design, and he uh, picked the species and showed which ones were, were would feature, which is why you don't have Tyrannosaurus, you don't have a few other things. Um, we'll get into the, the species of dinosaurs featured later on. Um, they had to develop a fur, a proper fur tool. Again, something that was very, very rare. It got pretty complicated. Live action stuff had to have POV shots from the dinosaur's point of views. Originally, this thing was budgeted at 25 million when it was a stop motion. It ended up at 127.5 million. Um, went into the box office with mixed reviews. Um, we'll talk about those reviews later on, but ultimately it can be considered a financial success because it made about 350 million. What about the good dinosaur? Dinosaur had a shorter lifespan than Dinosaur, but not a dissimilar one. Uh, the idea was originally envisioned by Bob Peterson and Peter Stone uh, back in 2009. Uh, the central premise was the idea of a dinosaur that had survived into human times, uh, an intelligent dinosaur, and his human companion. Um, in this case, a human would be rather animalistic. Uh, the dinosaur would be elevated, the, the human would be downgraded, shall we say. It would be a boy and his dog story, and this was something that tied in deeply to a lot of this film. The idea was to see dinosaur stereotypes as presented in the modern day. 
Uh, it was actually inspired by the World Fair, 1964 New York World's Fair, where there were some dinosaur animatronics that, that uh, Bob Peterson loved. At the time, the, the main character, Arlo, uh, the, the sauropod, was seen as an outsider in many ways. And the idea of what it would take to be a good dinosaur. 2012, the film was given a release date of about 2013. That would eventually be pushed back to 2015. Because like Disney's Dinosaur, this underwent a lot of revisions. uh, A lot of changes. Peterson would leave the project in 2013, I believe. Largely because he couldn't decide what to do with the third act. After Peterson left, there was a phase where several different directors stepped up to fill his shoes. Eventually, uh, Peterson, who was with Peterson originally in the development of the film, took over. And the nature of the film began to change as it was pushed further and further back. Also, uh, this film got caught up in a Pixar layoff, where a lot of people who worked in this film left. Um, Originally, Arlo was envisioned as like a full-size sauropod, and the idea was his human friend Spot would be sort of a a small, tiny companion, but people felt that it was too different. It was like someone being friends with a bee. The original pitch was a boy and his dog, essentially, and so Arlo's design was downsized and was changed dramatically from a vaguely realistic to a hyper, hyper cartoony design. A very large number of well-known people were hired to be in this film, including John Licko and Francis McDormand. In 2014, they then announced that the film had changed so much that the nature itself would be the film's primary antagonist. And it kept on changing. It kept on, it kept on changing. Uh, originally the film was described as a vaguely Billy Elliot story the, with a big emphasis on dinosaur culture and community and how Arlo was an outsider. Broadly speaking, it was How to Train Your Dragon. And so it was ultimately reinvented and completely recast and the film they got was ultimately a 1950s semi-western. Very much in the style of those boy and his dog western films that came out in the, the 50s and the 60s. In terms of design, a huge amount of emphasis was put onto the environment. The dinosaurs themselves were basically very much envisioned as being people in dinosaur bodies. So Arlo was given a very, very stylized design to make him look more human. The T-Rexes that were featured were based on ranchers. Um, so they not only had very human faces for Tyrannosaurus, um, they also kind of hopped as they run because the idea was to make it look like they're riding horses. So yeah, that's the history of our films. Two films that clearly had a lot of changes in their production, development, scripting. So let's look into what the stories of these films were. Disney's Dinosaur opens with a scene that will be very familiar for anyone who's seen Land Before Time as an iguanodon herd is attacked by a Carnotaurus. One of their eggs survives and goes through a long trip across a beautiful landscape, ultimately being found by a bunch of lemurs <laughs> who decide to raise the baby as their own. Years later, the baby, who's now been named Aladar, has grown up and is trying to partake in a lemur mating ritual. He's not having much luck, and the ritual is interrupted by a meteor which hits the earth, drowns their island, 
and severely damages the ecosystem of the mainland. Uh, Aladar saves his immediate family, uh, but most of the lemurs on the island die. They cross over to the mainland, encounter dangerous dinosaurs, and eventually meet up with a massive interspecies herd led by an iguanodon named Kron and his lieutenant Bruton who are traveling to the nesting ground, a, an untouched paradise. This herd has a very survival of the fittest uh, vibe to it. Uh, Kron is of the opinion that if you drop, you can be left behind. You are powered by your own strength. His sister Nira, who is the most feminine and therefore most attractive dinosaur in the group, uh, is more interested in Aladar's compassion and is drawn to him. Uh, yes, in that way. Uh, Aladar, because of his mammal-born compassion, which is something they really drive home here, the dinosaurs are primitive and brutal, the mammals are emotional and uplifting, uh, ends up making friends with several elderly dinosaurs, as Kron's tactics mean that these kind of dinosaurs will be left behind to die. Aladar works to keep them alive. Bruton is on a scouting mission and is wounded by the predators and comes back to warn Kron. Kron then basically has the herd move out, leaving Aladar, Bruton, the elderly dinosaurs, and the lemurs behind. Um, during a fight in the rain, Aladar manages to protect Bruton from the Canotaurus for just long enough for Bruton com to commit a heroic sacrifice. And Aladar and his friends manage to escape and try to catch up to the herd. They realize that the way the herd is on is blocked by rocks. They manage to meet up with the herd again. Aladar tries to convince Kron of what's going on. Kron, who is completely stuck in his own ways, he's backwards looking. He tries to pick a fight with Aladar. Uh, eventually, the herd realizes that Kron is essentially looking out for number one, and Aladar has made a new leader. And the movie ends with a new generation of dinosaurs being born in this wonderful land where suddenly everyone gets along. And I'll be honest, if you think this film sounds familiar, and is basically the land before time, you're not wrong. The Good Dinosaur, of course, is set in an alternate history where dinosaurs didn't die out and became super intelligent farmers. Arlo is the son of Henry and Ida, and the tradition is that uh, you've got to make a make your mark, a big mud print on the corn silo, uh, once you have proven yourself to be a contributing member of the farm. Uh, Arlo's pretty timid, and his dad is pretty tough, so he thinks he's going to have Arlo man up by having him guard the corn silo from pests, in this case cavemen, who act like dogs. Arlo manages to trap a cave boy, but he doesn't want to kill him and sets him free. Henry decides that his son needs to learn his lesson about, again, being a man, and takes him to kill the cave boy. Um, the two are caught in a flash flood, and Arlo is saved by his father, who unfortunately dies. Um, with his father dead, Arlo is taking things pretty hard. He's doing a lot more of the workload at home, and he's being a lot less happy. Um, he sees the cave boy again sneaking into the silo, blames him for his father's death, and runs after him into a river, tries to kill him but hits his head on a stone and is knocked out. He's eventually washed downstream an unknown distance from home. He's trying to make his way back, but he becomes trapped by a bowler. Uh, passes out, wakes up to find he's been freed, and the little cave boy is bringing him food. Uh, eventually the two realize that they can be friends, or in this case, boy and his dog, and the cave boy is named Spot. 
Arlo decides to make his way home and bring Spot with him. They get caught in a storm and eventually become even more lost. Afterwards, they meet a seemingly friendly group of pterosaurs led by a guy called Thunderclap, who were saying they'll help, but it turns out they want to eat Arlo and Spot. Um, running away from them, the, the pair stumble upon a trio of tyrannosaurs who turn out to be savage but rather friendly ranchers of longhorns. And I... That's just cattle, just longhorn cattle. The trio offers to take them in, but needs their help catching some cattle rustlers. They eventually have a big campfire talk about how men is men, women is women, and everyone's living on the range. They get caught in another storm, the pterosaurs show up again, and after a brief struggle, Arlo manages to save Spot from being eaten and attacks the pterosaurs, knocking them into a river where they are plunged to their watery graves. Unfortunately, they drop Spot in the river at the same time. Arlo jumps in to save him. The two manages to survive, and they almost make it to Arlo's home. But then Spot, who it's it's not really brought up much, but is some sort of orphan at this stage, uh, hears the call of an unknown caveman and is approached by a cave person family. And Arlo, with tears in his eyes, lets his dog man boy go to his new family. They love each other, but it needs to be. You need to... Answer the call of the wild there, old yeller. Arlo returns home, leaves his mark in his silo, and makes peace with the spirit of his father. The end! So, of course, we now have to look at the paleontological accuracy of these films. And it's, um, yeah, a mixed bag would be the way I put it. Dinosaur, of course, visually is trying for, at the time, fairly realistic designs. Um, it features a wide number of species, kind of tourists, the Moloch, Iguanodon, Parasaurolophus, Ankylosaurus, Microceratops, Pachyrhinosaurus, Stachyrhinosaurus. Ichthyornis, Oviraptor, and at least on first glance, they all summarily look realistic. Like I said, these things are talking, so their faces are altered to make them look more human and expressive. But the visuals are what I would call at least in line with Jurassic Park era accuracy. Um, in some cases, a little bit more accurate, like the Velociraptors features in this do look more like real raptors. Uh, there are some rather glaring differences. Size is all over the place, uh, particularly in the Carnotaurus, which are at least as big as the T-Rex in this. Uh, so that would make them about two or three times the size of the actual animal. Um, there's also a lot of proportional changes, like their skulls are beefed up to nines really to give them a much essentially they've been made as much as possible into a tyrannosaurus um, they've also got inaccurate arms and in that they have functional elbows and uh, i believe they had three fingers but at the time it wasn't well known that one carnotaurus had four fingers and two they didn't have proper elbows and um, their arms are actually far far more uh, useless than tyrannosauruses were which were incredibly strong for their size carnotaurus the arms were severely reduced and there is zero function to them bar perhaps signaling. And there's also the fact that very few of these species lived in either the same time period or same geological location. We've got animals from Argentina, Mongolia, Africa, America, Europe. You've got animals from the Jurassic, the early Cretaceous, the late Cretaceous, Paleogene. And as always with these kind of films, it's hard to criticize them for that. Very few paleofiction films, books, games, anything really want to portray 
the dinosaurs that live together co-temporally and coevally. Uh, because a lot of the more famous or more dramatic dinosaurs didn't exist at the same time. Everyone wants to see Stegosaurus and Triceratops together. And there's more time between those two genera than there is between us and Triceratops. But graphically, they overall, with the sacrifices they had to make for this film, did the, the very best that they could in making these things look as photorealistic as possible for the time. In some ways, and I don't think it would ever get credit for this, this could be seen as kind of a precursor to The Lion King in what it did for pushing forward photorealistic animals. Of course, unlike uh, The Lion King, this realized that the animals needed to express if you were going to give them lines, so <laughs> it beats it out in that way. The good dinosaur is not trying to be realistic in any way, shape, or form. Um... The dinosaurs don't look anything like the real thing. Stylization rules the roost. Yeah, like, you know, I, I've said in the primal review that stylization is not something I have a problem with. I'm not crazy about the stylized design they go for here because it's what I call the Pixar era of animation, which is basically that all animation now looks the same, or at least all mega movie animation looks the same. So visually, this film is almost impossible to distinguish from any other Pixar film or DreamWorks film or anything really that's come out following Toy Story or perhaps more accurately following Shrek. But I will say they don't look anything at all like the real animal, but the actual taxa diversity in this is pretty impressive. Uh, a lot of lesser known species show up. Um, you've got famous ones like Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, T-Rex, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, and Kylosaurus. Higher grade ones like Styracosaurus, Parasaurolophus, but um, you've got a variety of different birds. You've got Caudipteryx, Alexornis, um, you've got Avasaurus in there. Uh, the pterosaurs do not include a single pteranodon. It's Nyctosaurus, Cochlocephalus, Leodactylus, Guidraco, for pretty, pretty obscure groups. Um, You've got a couple of interesting extinct reptiles and amphibians in there. Uh, probably for me the most interesting is the Tetrapodophus, which is a four-legged snake, which I actually know the person who named that. And uh, yeah, it hadn't been around long for at the time, so I think it's really, really cool it was in there. So I very much praise the species choice in this. In terms of um, Cenozoic species, there's not many, really. Most of the, most of the taxa that show up in this in terms of major mammals or birds are all extant. A lot of foxes, bison, possums, stuff like that. Animals that you would find in the real world today. Uh, and Neanderthals, obviously. Um, so, a little disappointing in that regard. No mammoths, no saber-teeth. I, I, I would have really liked to see them in this. I think they would have made a nice inclusion. Um, but yeah, paleontologically... Uh, yeah, this is as far from the real thing as, as possible. This film is all about the boy and his dog story. The fact these are dinosaurs has almost no relevance to the story. I suppose there's really no reason to make the dinosaurs look anything realistic. Which I realize is a frequent thing I say on this show. But please note, at the moment, I'm largely doing very, very weird stylized stuff. Once we get into stuff that I think is trying much more to be grounded, uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about uh, how to create properly realistic dinosaurs in a fictional setting. So, 
these films have remarkably similar review histories. Um, Good Dinosaur is rated slightly higher than Disney's Dinosaur, but basically you have the same thing. A lot of people don't like the stories in these. Um, Disney's Dinosaur is basically described as the land before time, but not as well done. The Good Dinosaur is is described as a 1950s boy and his dog western story, but not as well done. They're very derivative of the films that inspired them. I mean, the opening for Disney's Dinosaur and the ending of Disney's Dinosaur is so close to the opening and ending of Land Before Time, it's almost insulting, in my opinion. And unfortunately, the entire writing for that film feels very lazy and very unoriginal. Uh, nothing in this film feels like it's pushing the boat. Nothing in this film feels like it's challenging anything. It's not particularly funny, its action isn't particularly good, but it's got for the time outstanding visuals. Every review you find praises the visuals of this film. They think the location shots are excellent, the dinosaurs look great. It's just the writing is so very bland. If you want to see realistic looking dinosaurs, you've got Jurassic Park. If you want to see this story done better, you've got The Land Before Time. The Good Dinosaur, on the other hand, got a bit more praise for its story, but again, a lot of criticism for being derivative. Not many people liked the aesthetic style of it, but everyone praised the amazing graphics in the backgrounds, and the environmental graphics in that movie are fantastic. Everything in those environments that is interacting with each other is rather boring. It also features a lot of rather dull performances. The need to make this so strictly in the western genre really hurts this film in my opinion. And the idea to go in that particular stylized direction hurts the film if you are into dinosaurs because nothing in here really looks good. Um, Nothing looks memorable. I think having the Rexes run like they're galloping horses was a mistake because unfortunately it makes them look very, very goofy. And I think the film suffers in many ways from a lot of the tropes that have arisen in Pixar films in the modern day. This is actually the first Pixar film to be a financial disappointment. While it made, I think, 300 million total on a 125, 150 budget, the advertising costs for this film were so high that the film ended up making only about 50 million, which for a Pixar film is peanuts. It's also unapologetically a kid's film. Uh, And that's not a bad thing. I think it's important to have films that are strictly aimed at young children. But it's very unusual for a Pixar film to be this aimed at children. And it hurts it. I think this film is talking down to its audience. And the interesting thing to me about these two films, these two ultimately disappointing films, is that they both started as better ideas. Um, Dinosaur was originally envisioned as a dark, fairly mature adventure with a bit of a downer ending. And because someone wanted to make it more Disney, make it more inverted commas marketable, uh, the film lost a lot of of its intended soul. Uh, The Good Dinosaur, it had a more standard, like I said, how to train your dragon approach. It always was going to have this slightly Western theme, but by going so hard into it, making everything so cutesy making everything so a boy and his dog. Like, not just a boy and his dog, but a boy and his dog, all capitals. The film ultimately suffers by having no actual identity. Uh, The Good Dinosaur 
is the least distinct Pixar film. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing interesting about it beyond the visuals, which are a really great scenery. And the fact that instead of the usual talking animals or talking people, you have dinosaurs. But ultimately we got what we got. We got a pair of fairly technically impressive films with disappointing scripts. One trying to be as realistic and prove how far the technology has come as possible. The other trying to really fit into the same mold as everything else. I can't say either was a success, but I would say I would go back and watch Dinosaur before The Good Dinosaur pretty much any day of the week. Anyway, that ended up being a wee bit more negative than I intended, but hey-ho. Guys, thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank the listener who hasn't given me permission to you say their name, so I won't, uh, for their request. Um, Really appreciating the reviews and feedback, guys. Keep them coming. If you want to contact me, guys, with comments or anything, fossilfic at gmail.com is the address. You can always contact me on Irish Paleo on Twitter. That's Paleo with P-A-L-A-E-O, not the American spelling. And as always, if you have any requests of anything you'd like me to cover, please feel free to send them on. I am happy to consider anything. But everyone, thank you so much for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again. And yeah, talk to you soon.